Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Tonight, I want to put a capstone on well, our Sunday morning and last night, and I just want to share from my heart a message that many times you will hear a message like this around Christmas, and it's a tragedy that we limit some of the scripture in the book of Matthew to certain times, thank you, Pastor, certain times in our life, like Christmas season or the Easter message. This message on Be the Light, God's Travel Guide, I believe is a timeless message year-round. And I want you to turn to the book of Matthew, the second chapter, the ninth through the twelfth verse. Again, God's travel guide, be the light to a dark world, or being the light. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, of the book of Matthew, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the three synoptic gospels of the New Testament. The word synoptic meaning of the same kind, you get a complete telling of the story of the life of Christ from three different perspectives. I love to read Dr. Luke's perspective because it's very concise. (coughs) Excuse me, he writes like a doctor. I love to hear Matthew's version of it as well. But all of them dovetail together to give you three different angles or a panoramic view of the Gospels. Well, in Matthew, they're talking about when Christ was born. And they're talking about when the Magi came and they followed the star. You know the story. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, (coughs) till it came and stood over where the young child was. Verse 10. When they saw the star, everyone say, when they saw the star. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him in gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their country another way. And when they saw the star, that star attracted them. And it turned them, or it moved them, in a direction to where the king or the savior was laying. That star, out of the billions of stars in the galaxy, God chose one star and lit it up especially bright so that it would get the attention of these wise magi or wise men. The question in my study, I began to ask, well, who really are the magi? The Greek word mageo in Matthew 2, verse 1 through 12, is transliterated into English as magi, or what we know as the wise men. We cannot know for certain exactly who these magi were. Now, in recent years, we've often simply thought that they were coming from the east from a religious sect that emphasized astrology. However, we do know Matthew 2.1 says the magi did come from the east. Most of the world east of Israel, all the way to India, was controlled by the Parthian or the, the Persian Empire from 247 B.C., to eighty two twenty eight, And this area would be would known today as the area of Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Armenia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, even parts today of what we know as Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, and yes, even Israel. So you see, it's a massive empire that the Parthenians and the Persians had. 
to better understand who the Magi were, let me take you back when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had come to Israel and he besieged Jerusalem. He takes, the Bible says, the book of Daniel begins with Daniel being taken to Babylon. And I mentioned the other night, or Sunday night, that God would be with these young men. But the first thing the Babylonians did, or the Persians, is they would try to deconstruct the thought process of a young generation. And they would change their names, and they would coax them with money. They would coax them with fame and fortune and leadership. They wanted to change their diet, literally, to become a part of their diet. And they were trying to erase all of the Jewish heritage or their belief system in God from their mind. Exactly what digital Babylon is trying to do to your children, to your grandchildren, to the next generation that is coming. But the Bible says that when Daniel was there, God's hand was upon Daniel, and he was raised by the king of, of Babylon to what is called the Rab Madge, or the chief of the Magi. Did you know that Daniel was actually put in charge of the Magi? And we read that in Daniel chapter 4, verses 9, and Daniel 5, verse 11. Daniel 2, 48 says that Daniel, as chief of the Magi, was ruler of the entire province of Babylon. And we know based on the book of Daniel, these Magi obviously were powerful men in the very, Babylon, very powerful Babylonian and Persian empire. We can see an instance of a power struggle taking place between Daniel and the Magi because the Magi were trying to impeach Daniel and they were trying to get rid of him and they had no proof. So they had to manufacture something. And they were trying to impeach him based on hearsay. Does that sound familiar? And they were upset because they didn't like this outsider coming in and being raised up. You see, when the hand of God is on your life, the favor of God is not fair. And God will raise you up to different positions for such a time as this because he's got a plan and a call and a purpose. And God's hand was resting on Daniel. And the Magi, they realized We've got to get something on this guy. But the scripture says that he was so loved. and beloved. In fact, the Babylonians called him Daniel the Beloved. And he stood for the things of God. And as he's standing, they say, we got to get rid of him so they concoct a plan. And they play on the pride of the king. And they tell the king, you should set a decree that if anyone worships any other god but you, set up an image of yourself. Any other god, they'll be thrown into the lion's den. Well, the king, he's full of pride, and so he allows himself to get entrapped in this scheme. And the magi, in Daniel chapter 6, they concoct this plan. And Daniel is so righteous and godly and holy that he opens his windows three times a day, even in the midst of trouble, and he prays to his God just like he did before. Why? Because Daniel knows Monday through Saturday matters. Say it with me. Monday through Saturday matters. Say it again. Monday. And God supernaturally put his hand on him because Daniel honored God Monday through Saturday and not just on Sunday. Now, the Magi were very influential, <coughs> excuse me, in the Parthian Empire. In fact, they were the governing body or the Magistanes, which means the great ones are lords. The Magistanes consisted of the Sophi and the, Mag and the Magi, or the Sophi and the Magi. 
It's very interesting to note that history tells us the Magi were the ones responsible for choosing the kings of the great Parthian Empire. It wasn't because they were born into the leadership. This group of people known as the Magi were like a government, and they would choose the next emperor to run the Persian Empire. They had unusual amount of power and control for an eastern monarchy in which they were not the absolute king. In fact, there is a sense that they were like kings and lords, and the only one over them was the king they chose. So they had amazing power. Little wonder that some of the words or songs written about them over the centuries has referred to them as kings. Their power was, in fact, only exceeded by the absolute king himself. And that's why when we hear, we three kings from Orient are pairing gifts from, we think, wow, these guys must have been royalty. No, they were just below the actual king, but they were very, very powerful. They chose the king. And based on the history of the Magi, they're not sounding like three guys on little camels that ride quietly into Bethlehem, as the story is often told. In our Western mentality, we think of three guys quietly riding little camels in and bringing their, their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But notice in this passage that there is no mention of the number of magi that come to worship Jesus. There are only three kinds of gifts mentioned. And friend, based on what is known historically of the magi, it makes more sense that likely they would have come thundering into the area of Jerusalem on Arabian stallions, accompanied by some very tough-looking, serious soldiers. In fact, one Commentator I read said the Parthian cavalry was known for defeating the Roman army. And they could have come in with scores or hundreds of people accompanying the Magi. These men were so powerful, it's hard for me to believe, based on historical fact, that they would not have a guard protecting them. And why are they there? They're following the star, and these men have the power to name an emperor or a king. Many historians said that the Magi came with a small army. Some think that the normal garrison of Roman soldiers that usually accompanied or occupied Israel were off fighting the Homodicean war and left them unprotected. So they didn't have a garrison of Roman soldiers there to protect them. When these guys come thundering in, it's little wonder that when the Magi show up and they're following the star and they're looking and asking about a king. Matthew 2.3 says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Listen, friend, the ordinary astrology or astrologist strolling into Jerusalem on two or three donkeys or, or camels and being very quiet would not cause anybody, even King Herod himself, or let alone his bodyguard, to be worried. And yet, the arrival of these guys freak out the entire city. They shake the king to his core. And the Bible tells us when the men saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. These men who chose kings, they came and knelt before the king of kings. This men who had power to create empires, they came and knelt before the empire of God. But first they had to make the choice to follow the star or completely ignore the message they knew the star was sending. However, as they were watching the sky, the light was so bright on this one star that God had chosen that it actually made the choice to follow that star from India 
to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Friends, that star was bright because of its close proximity to the S-U-N, the sun. Because it was closer to the sun than other stars, it had a brighter shine. And it was that shining light that gave direction to the seekers and the searchers. Men who were actually in other religions But when they saw that star, that star became the travel guide that God would use them and God would use to bring them to the only Savior they ever needed, to the emperor of heaven, the people in other religions. That star had something about it that made it stand out. That star popped. There was something about that star that was unique. It was different. These men had studied other stars before, but this star was worth following. I wonder if in their minds, when they finally got to the manger in Bethlehem, in the way my mind thinks, I wonder as they bowed down to worship the Savior with a spirit of awe and respect, knowing the awesomeness of the moment. Can you imagine the awesomeness and the serenity and the peace and the presence that was there in that manger. These men, knowing, divinely inspired with the knowledge that they were gazing down at deity in diapers. That's who Jesus was, deity in diapers. Wrapped up in squaddling clothes and laying in a manger. I believe in their minds, they're thinking, I'm so glad I made the decision to follow that star. I'm so glad that God put that star in my path. If God had not used that star as a travel guide, I would have never found the Savior. I would not have been here right now at this moment. I would have missed out on the greatest moment in the history of mankind. In the middle of all my searching and all my seeking, God thought enough of me to put a shining travel guide in my path to get me to the Savior. Listen, friend. None of us are here by accident. You didn't hear me. I said, none of us are here by accident. You see, all of us have been starstruck if we know Jesus Christ. I believe we are serving God because the Spirit of God used somebody in your life because of their close proximity to the Son. Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N, the Son of the living God. Some grandma, some grandpa, some mom, some dad, maybe an uncle or an auntie or a cousin or a brother or a sister. Maybe it was someone on the job. Maybe it was someone that you just saw from a distance, like a pastor. And when they saw them, we thought there's something different about that star. It shines brightly and different than everyone else. There is something different about that person. I can't put my finger on it, but something in them is shining. It's drawing me to follow them. When you were in sin, when you were lost, some of you were on drugs, maybe alcohol. Some of you were lost in sexual promiscuity. Maybe you never grew up in a Christian home, and now you followed somebody who got so close to the Son of God, and it got your attention. And God's mercy lit some Christian brightly, and God used them as a travel guide to get you to the Savior. And you wouldn't be here today, thank you, Pastor, you wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for those people who got so close to God, 
that you followed them to the Savior. I was thinking about how God uses the little things in our lives that happen that you seem to remember the most. It's not the big things in life. It's the little things in life that you remember the most. How many agree with that? It's not the big things. It's the little things that seem to make the most impact. And I want to ask you, as a parent, as a grandparent, as an uncle or an auntie, is your life bright enough that your children or your family can follow God's light in your life as a travel guide to get them to the Savior? I thought about my family and the impact they've had on my life while I was growing up. I think of my parents, my grandmother, my Uncle Dave, my Aunt Linda, my Uncle Anthony, my Aunt Ellie, my Uncle Evans, my Aunt Iris. Oh, the list is endless. When you're Puerto Rican, it's just endless. Can you humor me a little and let me allow me to go down for a couple minutes down memory lane and talk to you about all the travel guides that God put in my life? Growing up, my dad and my uncle, they sang in a Southern Gospel Quartet. And they bought an old Silver Eagle bus, a 1960 or 1970 Silver Eagle bus, and they took the, the last several rows out, and they put bunk beds in it, and they would travel all over Southern California, up into Oregon and Washington, Nevada. And I would get on that bus with them. I was 9, 10, 11 years old, and I thought it was the coolest bus in the world. I saw it later as I was a lot older, and I realized it really was a piece of junk. But at 8, 9, and 10, it was the coolest thing in the world. And I would go with them, and I, they, would, they would all gather around the piano, and I would squeeze in the middle, and I would listen to the four-part harmonies as they sang Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. They saved a wretch like me. Then they would sing, There is a river, and he touched me, and at the cross. <clears throat> Little did I know that God was lighting them up and using them in my life as a travel guide that I would follow to the Savior. This is my 30th year of full-time ministry. God used them as a travel guide. God lit up my mom and my grandmother, put love for prayer deep in my heart. Grandma would walk around the house. I think I've told you before. She would walk around the house, and she would sing in Spanish, and then in English, and then a heavenly language, you know. And, and she never finished the song she, because she'd get halfway through the song and get so blessed. She, Woo! She'd go, oh. she, would say, she would just start singing, you know. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is, woo! And her hair had little bobby pins, a little bun, you know. Remember when we used to wear buns and we were in bondage? Everybody was just, had that. And she would, woo, and, her, and the hair would kind of look like a slinky hanging down the side of her head. It was old school. And she would walk around and just, woo. So I got in trouble because we'd get into church, and we'd start singing, his eye is on. And whenever there was a break, I'd yell, woo, and I'd get smacked in the head. Thought that was the words. And she would take her hanky out and just praise God all over the house. Little did I know that God was lighting her up, and I was following her as a travel guide to the Savior. I remember when my grandfather was about to die, and they brought him in, and hospice came in, and they brought in a hospital bed there, 
And she would look at me and she'd say, mijo, let's just welcome the presence of Jesus as he takes Poppy home. And she'd walk around the house and she'd praise. And she would sing, Poppy, you've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright light. We'll never grow old. And I would watch her, and she would just light up. Her smile, there were no tears. And when he passed, she said, oh, baby, we just had a home going. Aren't you glad we were here to hear the master come and take him home? My Uncle Evans, he was Puerto Rican, of course, and he had the biggest smile and the biggest heart that you've ever seen. He never lost his accent. You know, in all the years, he lived to be 80-some-odd years old, and he never lost his accent. It was the cutest thing in the world. He sounded like Ricky Ricardo, and he, he had, he's a Lucy, he had his big smile on his face, and he would walk in a room and light up that place with a laugh. He had the joy of the Lord. He never met a stranger. He drove semi-diesel trucks for Sealand Truck Corporation out of the harbor in Los Angeles. And he would say, mijo, I drive diesels. I'd say, what? I drive diesels. I said, what's a diesel? And he would just smack me in the head, you know. So it was natural for him when Pastor Sapp said, we need someone to volunteer to drive our bus. We only had one school bus. In fact, uh, the uh, deacons, they sent it to Earl Scheib to get painted. Earl Scheib in Los Angeles will paint any car for $99.95. That's Earl Scheib. And, and the deacon said, listen, we don't have a lot of money. They told the body guys at Earl Scheib, we don't have a lot of money, so paint it with whatever you got in the shop. Well, it came out all different colors. It looked like the Partridge family bus. And they, they put on the side of the bus, First Assemblies of God, the happy bus. And they put little clowns with big red noses and balloons and, and I looked at my uncle, and I said, they're going to get us killed. And he would smile and say, oh, no, let's go pick up all the people for church. He would stand at the door of the church and greet every single person with a big smile. He knew every person's name that came through that door. When he passed away a couple of years ago, I preached his homegoing service. Oh, we had church. And there were people there who said they were serving God because my Uncle Levins invited them to church. Or they came back to church because he welcomed them at the church door. Many of them said, Pastor Randy, if heaven has greeters at the pearly gates, your Uncle Levins will be standing right next to Jesus and St. Peter, welcoming everybody home. Oh, little did he know that as God lit him up, I was following him as a travel guide to the Savior. My Uncle Anthony was Italian. He was married into the family. <coughs> Growing up, they were very poor. He married my dad's sister, you know. They were very poor, so he developed a love for raw onions. And he would eat raw onions like you would eat a delicious apple. And then when you would come into his house, he would kiss you with that onion breath. And he would suck the skin off your forehead and put his big old arms around you, big old Italian guy. Anthony Galliotta was his name, and he used to call me Hondo. And the reason he called me Hondo is because I loved John Wayne. He named me after John Wayne. And when I was three and four years old, I would walk around the house with my chaps on, my underwear, a T-shirt, and a cowboy hat. 
he gave me a little gun and, and some cap guns, and I would line all my cousins up, and I would preach to them. And if they moved, I'd pull my gun out and say, shoot that kid. Shoot that kid. And uncle thought that was so funny. You don't know how many times in ministry I wish I had that cap gun. Shoot that kid. Uncle Anthony, he was a life insurance salesman for a living. He worked for Farmers Insurance, I believe it was, or one of those life insurance companies. And he would say to me, come on, Hondolas, you come with me. And I would sit there in the stranger's house, and he would say, I just told you about life insurance. Now let me, before I leave, talk to you about life assurance. And his whole countenance would change. And he would be lit up. And I would watch. I would watch literally the Holy Spirit come from within. I didn't understand it at the time. But I would watch the Holy Spirit come from within him upon him. You see, at salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit in you. But when it's time for ministry, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he comes from within you, upon you, and he lights you up. And you become a travel guide. And little did he know, he became a travel guide for me to follow to the Savior. Every morning, he would get up early to spend time in prayer. He wasn't a pianist. I mean, he wasn't as good as Pastor Doug. And in fact, my uncle would just, you know, they, he would chicken pack is what they call it. And he would get up and sit up at the piano and plunk out his favorite hymns. And if you're staying at his house on a Sunday morning, you were woke up to this booming voice. And he would always say the same thing. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Good morning. He left me 50 years of sermons and articles that he collected over the years, placing them in three-ring binders. And the authors of these articles were none other than David Wilkerson, Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, Hans Walfogel, Catherine Kuhlman, Rex Humbard, and the list goes on and on and on. And all through Bible college, he had no idea that I would sit and I would read those articles and I would soak in the Word of God he had no idea that he, I was following him as a travel guide to the Savior. Friends, I'm here today because God put some shining bright stars in my life that led me to the Savior. And time would fail me if I told you about Sunday school teachers and senior pastors and youth pastors and worship leaders and missionaries, people in the church that had no idea that as they lifted their hands and they worshiped God in the good and in the bad, as they romanced the Holy Spirit, they had no idea that I was sitting watching and I was following their life. Oh, I've got to tell you one more. Her name was Gladys Pearson. Gladys Pearson was a missionary in our church that was sent home from the mission field because of severe arthritis. And she never married, you know. She was a spinster, what they used to call them. And, and she had severe arthritis, and her fingers were gnarled, and she had toes that were gnarled, and she had to wear open-toed shoes. She had a hump in her back, and she walked with a walker. And I was a bad kid. I used to tease her in church all the time. I used to say, Sister Pearson, you need a man. And she'd look at me, she'd say, oh, I got a man. i go, oh, Sister Pearson got a man. She goes, that's right. My man opens doors that no man can open. My man never let me down. I said, ooh, Sister Pearson. But have you ever been in a building when someone shows up, the atmosphere changes? 
And she would always come to church late, not because she wanted to, but because she was forced to, because by the time she got out of her little apartment and with her walker and put it into the back of her car, we always left the first five rows or the first five stalls, I should say, for Sister Pearson. In fact, it had a sign that said, for Gladys Pearson. And the reason is, we never knew how she was going to park her car. And she didn't care if she hit your car. And she would pull in, and you'd come out, and it was all cattywampus one way and park the other way. And she'd get out, and people would say, excuse me. And she'd say, ah, going to church. Crazy old bird, just going to church. And she would walk in the center aisle, and she would light up. The close proximity to the Son of God. She'd get halfway down the aisle with her walker, and the atmosphere would change, and she would lean against the pillar that held the balcony at First Assembly of God, Wilmington, California, and she would say, Holy Spirit, I'm coming. The Spirit is willing, but this whole tired flesh is weak. And she'd get all the way down to the front, and if you were sitting right here, and I'm watching her from where the youth used to sit in the back. In fact, sitting next to me was my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And I, was, I wasn't paying attention. I mean, you know, I was a typical church kid. I was in the back trying to get my Mac on, you know, and I was t- I'm talking to her. And I'm writing on the back of the offering envelope using the hymnal, those old green hymnals. You remember them? And I would write on the back of the offering envelope, do you think I'm cute? Check yes. And we're playing hangman and tic-tac-toe until Sister Pearson would come in. She'd come all the way down to the front. And if you were sitting down here, she'd tap you and she'd say, baby, can you help me bend my knees? Mother Pearson hasn't prayed today. And we all knew Sister Pearson prayed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because when she came through that door, the atmosphere had changed, and God lit her up as a travel guide, a star that was so bright, and she'd go lay on her face, the Greek word proskania, where we get our English word prostrate, and there would come a sound out of her of prayer and intercession, and it would literally pull me out of my chair, and I would run and lay down next to her, and when she passed, I got a call from her family, and they said, Brother Randy, would you please come and preach her service, oh, God's travel guides. I could tell you about Minnie Eklund, Norma Faulkner, Lloyd Waterfield. Oh, Lloyd was a crazy old dude in our church. He would sit behind us in, the, in church, in the youth section, and, and he had a cane, and the old man would sit like this, and if I leaned over to talk to my girlfriend, he'd hit me in the back of the head with that cane. And I'd look at him and say, crazy old dude. What's... My parents didn't say nothing. Nowadays, they'd sue him, you know, but so we would kind of slide down, you know, we'd slide down the seat. That old crazy dude would slide down the pew with us. And if I leaned over again, bah, he hit me in the back of the head. And he said the same thing every time. My God has an abundant supply. <laughs> My God has a... So when the altar call was given, we would get up and run to the altar because we needed healing. Got a bunch of lumps in the back of my head. So we'd run down there and we'd get into the altar... And no joke, if you got up too soon, he would put his size 10 boot in your lower back and push you back down. And he would say, my God has an abundant supply. 
He knew if he kept me there long enough, the presence of God would get a hold of my heart. Now I'm squalling. I'm crying, Lord, forgive me. I've got muckles. i got tears. And as soon as I'm crying and getting touched, I can hear him walk away and say, I told you my God had an abundant supply. God's travel guides. Listen, I think we need to stop right here because you have somebody that you can put in that slot that was a shining bright light in your life. And as I've been talking, many of you have been nodding, some of you wiping the tears because you're getting mental images of the ones that were the travel guide for you. The moment I talked about my uncle at the gates of the New Jerusalem, some of you started nodding your heads because you put your abuela there or you put your your grandfather or your uncle or your aunt or your cousin. Travel guides, and if it wasn't for them, you would not be here. And there are others that say, well, Pastor Randy, I don't have family members, but my travel guide is Pastor Janet. My travel guide is our lead pastor. My travel, and you start naming different people in the church. So I think it's perfectly appropriate right now that we just take about 30 seconds. I want you to close your eyes and lift your hands and begin to thank God right now for those ones that plays a major role in your life. Come on, praise him for him. I want you to lift your hands and praise them for him right now. Lord, thank you for those that lit up so bright because if they would not have been there for Jesus, I would never have known them. Come on, somebody praise God right now for the travel guide. You might want to call their name out. Yes, Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you for my grandmother and my father and my mom. I thank you for our pastors. Somebody thank God for your pastor, for Pastor Doug, Pastor Janet, Pastor Todd. Somebody thank God if you've got a teenager for your youth pastor. That's a travel guide for your teenager. We thank you, Lord. (coughs) I've often thought about my life and asked myself, where would I be if nobody in my life had gotten close to the Son of God? that their life had shone so bright that it caught my attention? Where would I be? Listen, you can be that light for your family. You can be that light for the people on the job. You can be that shining light that they become so starstruck, and it's not for you or your glory or your honor. All you are is the one pointing them to the Savior. Because God has got to have somebody that is willing to get close to the Son of God. God has got to have somebody that will lay in the altars of intercession. God has got to have somebody that will support missions and reflect light into a dark world. There's got to be somebody out of this church that will say, Lord, use me as a travel guide. I want the presence of Almighty God to so shine in my life, Lord, that my children will follow me to Jesus. When the wise men followed the star, they found Jesus in the stable. They weren't expecting to find him in the stable. After all, these men, they select kings. That's why they went first to the palace. They expected the king of the universe to be in the palace. But instead, they followed the star, and it didn't lead them to the palace. It led them to the stable. What do you do? What do you do? When you follow the star, 
and it leads you to the stable. What do you do when you have a dream and you follow Jesus and you think he's going to make your life happy and successful with no problems, come everything is going to be smooth sailing and you're doing everything that is right, you're praying, you're fasting, you're tithing, you're following the ultimate star, Jesus, and you end up in the stable. We all know that in stables, there's some stinky things. And life gets tough. See, sometimes we think that if we're not in the palace life, God is not with us. In our human mentality, we think if I'm not driving the right car, or if I'm not living in the perfect house, or if I don't have the perfect job, or if I'm not wearing the perfect things, or if I don't have power broker friends, then God must not be with me. If we're not living in the palace life with everything coming our way, that somehow we must not be in the will of God. But the truth is, when you follow the real star, Jesus Christ, yes, thank God for the palace days when you're living the high life and God is blessing and everything is on the mountaintop. But I want you to not forget that sometimes you'll follow the star and you're going to end up in a stable. How many have experienced that? For instance, how about the couple is following the star of marriage and everything starts out so beautiful? Oh, it's so perfect. I officiated my nephew's wedding last June, and I told him during the ceremony, oh, you guys look so cute. It is so nice. The dresses are perfect. The tuxedos are wonderful. The flowers are great. God made a beautiful day for you. It's an amazing time. God made all the birds that are singing, and they'll go, yeah, uncle, yeah, and they're, they're so excited. Oh, it's wonderful. The violins are playing, but you know the same God that made this perfect day also makes tornadoes. How many married folks understand that? And, and also makes earthquakes. And everything starts out so good. You're holding hands. You're exchanging vows in sickness and in health to love, honor, and cherish. But a few years later, there's a fight. And what started out so ideal becomes an ordeal. And if you don't deal with it correctly, you think you got a raw deal. And then the devil starts whispering, you need a new deal. What do you do? Now your marriage is in the stable. What do you do when you talk and you take all that you own and you follow the star and you prayed about it and you start your own business, but the economy shifts? <coughs> the economy takes a turn. And you followed the star, but now you're in the stable. Or what do you do when your health is gone and you're sick and suffering and you end up in the stable? The doctor's prognosis is not good. Here's what you do. You do what David did when he walked up to Ziklag. And I taught on that Sunday morning. You do what these magi did when they came into the manger. You begin to look for God in the stable. Because I've come today to preach to somebody that the God of the mountain is still the God in the valley. The God of the day is still the God of the night. He's just not the God on the high palace days of your life, but you will find Jesus closer and nearer to you in the stables of life. If you believe that, someone shout amen. 
When nothing is going right, when it seems like everything is topsy-turvy, that's when you will find Jesus. He'll be right there, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I'm saying to some of you, the only way God could get your attention is to get you out of the palace and move you into the stable. Because as long as you were in the palace, you don't need him. As long as you're driving the Escalade, you don't want him. As long as you got the great paying job, there's no need for him. So God had to move you out of the palace life and put you in the stable life so that you could look up and say, where are you? Where are you, Lord? And somehow God has taken a mess in your life and turned it around into a message and a testimony for his glory. And he's taken your ashes and brought gold. If you've experienced that, somebody just say amen. Ashes to gold. All for the glory of God. And this is what you do when you follow the star and end up in the stable. You look for God because standing somewhere in the shadows, you will find Jesus. I got a call from Bill Newby. He was the assistant assistant superintendent of our district in southern Missouri. And he says to me, hey, where are you? And I said, well, I just landed at the airport. He said, would you please come to the airport? Jim Tuber is dying of lung cancer. Jim Tuber was his brother-in-law. And I said, sure, I'll be right there. And he said, oh, one thing, Randy, I want you to pray all the way to the airport because Jim wants to be baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in a heavenly language so that he knows how to talk when he gets to heaven. And I said, well, Pastor, I don't know how doctrinally sound that is or theologically sound that is because tongues are a gift. And just because one has it doesn't mean the others are not as capable or as loving. It's just a gift, just like wisdom is a gift, understanding so I'm driving to the hospital, and I'm saying, Lord, I need words of comfort, of exhortation, and sensitive counsel. Words of comfort, exhortation, and sensitive counsel. And I pulled in, and I went up to the ICU, and Jim is dying of lung cancer. He's actually drowning in his own liquids, and he's got oxygen in his nose. And, and I walk in. I had nothing from God. I said, hi, Jim. He said, hi, Pastor. I said, Jim, I understand you want the gift of the prayer language. He said, yes. I said, Jim, I don't want you to seek tongues. I want you to seek Jesus. He's the giver of the gift. He lit up like a star. And he took a couple of breaths, struggled for the words, and a tear came down. And he says, Pastor, that's really good. You're just asking me to search for Jesus? I said, yeah. He said, okay, because he's standing right over there in that corner. And the presence of God filled that hospital room, and my knees buckled. It literally drove me to the floor. You see, when you're in the manger of a hospital, when you're in the mangers of life, when you begin to praise him. I told you Sunday morning that Jesus told the Samaritan woman, when you begin to worship the Father, he comes to seek you out. No matter where you are, he comes to seek you out. Is there anybody here by an upraised hand that can say, Randy, I'm in a manger scene. I'm in a stable life. I need the master to come and find me right now. Come on up. That's you. I want him to come seek me out right now. Well, Jim, as I'm kneeling there, looking through the rail of the bed, and I'm praying, and the presence of God was so strong, 
He's just worshiping God, and he's saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I need you. Thank you for coming for me, Lord. Thank you for coming. And as he's saying, thank you for coming for me, Lord, I hear shodam. And it just starts flowing. I don't know how long we were there, but I got up and I walked out. and I was halfway home, and Bill calls and says, well, Jim went to be with the Lord. I said, well, he said Jesus came for him. It's in the stables of life that you'll sense Jesus closer than he's ever been. What blows my mind, it's not only did these wise men search for God in the stable, but when they found themselves in the stable, they offered up their best worship in the stable. See, the natural inclination would be in the filthy, damp, dirty stable to withhold your best. Saying, I'm not going to give the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh here. This is costly worship. This is expensive worship. I'm in this stable and I feel uncomfortable. I don't like feeling uncomfortable. I'm not going to give the frankincense and myrrh here. It should be the kind of thing that's given in a palace, not in a stable. And they could have said, so I'm going to give my best worship when everything starts going right. I'll come back and give my best worship when he grows up a little and he's sitting on the throne. When things turn around. Does that sound familiar? I'll do more for God when I retire. I'll do more for God when the baby is up a little longer and he's in elementary school. I'll do more for God when they're in high school. I'll do more for God when I get out of college. No, no, this is expensive worship. And I feel uncomfortable where we are right now, Pastor. We're just trying to make it. We'll attend church more when we get a little more time. We're in a stable now, Pastor. It's hand to mouth. Got to work. If you can ever learn to give the best praise in unpleasant circumstances, you will see God move mightily when you praise him because the praise that costs the most counts the most. Hear it again. The praise that costs the most counts the most. And they begin to worship with expensive worship in a nasty, filthy place in life. The worship that God really looks for in your life is not when you're in the palace. Anyone can worship God in the palace. But when God looks for your best worship when you're in the stable, when you're hurting, when you don't know what tomorrow will bring, but you know who holds tomorrow, as the saying goes. And all you know is you can look back on your life and see how God has been faithful, how he has supplied shining stars in your life to guide you just when you almost went the wrong way. Listen, I often say, I thank God for what he has done in my life. But I often thank him even more for the things I almost did. And he sent a travel guide right at the point that I was about to blow it and he turned me around. He turned me around. And I said, thank you, Lord. And God began to maneuver you all around the devil's well-laid plans because the devil meant to kill you. And God will whisper to you, it's all working out for your good. And you're more than a conqueror, and I'm going to get you out of this if you'll keep following the star. I'm going to raise you up. I have great plans for you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will kneel 
at the foot of the Savior. And if you get real close to me, he says, I'll put my light into your life that I will use to bring your children and your children's children and your family and your friends and your workplace. I will begin to flow through you and use you as a travel guide that will lead people to the Savior. Let me close with this. In the Midwest, back before electricity <coughs> and refrigeration, they would have what was called ice houses. And they would take those ice houses and they would build mud. Here in, in Texas as well, they would take the mud from the rivers and they would make these mud houses and they would put sawdust in there. And when the rivers would freeze during the winter, they would go and take out big blocks of ice and put them in this house and put sawdust all around the floor. And it would, most of the time, last all the way through to fall. Well, there was a man that was working in the ice house, and he had lost his expensive watch. One of those railroad conductor's watches that has a chain on it. And his father had given it to him just before he passed away. It was a family heirloom. And he called his friends in, and they began to move the sawdust, and they tried to move the huge blocks of ice. And they searched and searched, but they couldn't find it. Well, he walks out of the ice house. He was so rejected, he went home for lunch and said, well, look, when we come back. As he walked away, a little eight-year-old boy walked into the ice house. An hour later, he came out holding the watch. When the man got there, he said, how long did it take you to find it? He said, about an hour. Astonished, he said, how did you find it? All of these men, we searched for hours. We couldn't find it. He said, oh, sir, it was simple. I just laid down on the sawdust and got real quiet. And the more quiet I got, I heard it ticking. Often, it, I had to learn in ministry. It took me a long time to realize that God was not interested in a monologue. He wanted a dialogue. I was just interested in a monologue. I would come to the altar, unburden myself, and feel so much better, and get up and walk away, and then have the audacity to ask the Holy Spirit, why am I still going around the same problem? Why am I still dealing with the same situation? And the Holy Spirit would say, because you're the only one talking. And the travel guides in my life, they taught me, God wants a conversation. And when you come to the altar, you have to put an ear. It's not that God isn't speaking, it's that we're not quiet enough to listen to his heart. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.